ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Pause Reviews Podcast, your favorite movie podcast where Tim and I discuss everything the internet has to offer and sift through the muck and mire to bring you something good to watch tonight. As always, I'm your host, Frank, joined by my trusty co-host, Timothy. <laughs> yeah. And that cough... <laughs> <laughs> that cough gives away a special guest host this week. I'm so excited. You know him from such episodes as uh, Hottest Men of Hollywood. And uh, what was the other one we did? Some other horror movie, I feel like. I don't know. But anyways. In the documentary, Star Wars documentary. On shot first. I'm still in firm belief. <laughs> you guys have heard him on previous podcasts. My brother, your friend, Rico. Welcome back, Rico. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to join the cast. Yes. No, I'm yeah. super excited, actually. We were kind of chatting and, uh, you know, just kind of shooting the poo, as it were. And uh, I had mentioned that we were talking about this episode. Rico was like, dude, I got to be on this episode uh time zones be damned because rico is currently inhabiting the west coast and uh and managed to make the time to make it here and we're so grateful man i think this is gonna be a blast whatever i can do to help i'm just here to <laughs> bro you know, whatever i can do to help we, <laughs> didn't, we didn't ask for your help sir how about your welcome <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> You are welcome. <laughs> no, you're welcome, sir. All right. Nice. Good, sir. <laughs> that is welcome. We have so much to talk about today, and yep. this has been a crazy day in my house for sure. Uh, no, school, no. school started today. Holes and pits were being dug <laughs> to fix plumbing issues. All kinds of shenanigans. So, as is becoming the norm, I feel like I need to stop giving this qualifier just because this is like how we do the show now in season two. But yeah. we're not as prepared as we had hoped in terms of scripts and notes. So, bear with us as we flip back and forth through about 57 uh, Chrome tabs so that we can bring yeah. you the info you expect on this. Yeah. A deep dive breakdown of the Fear Street Trilogy, 1994, 1978, and 1666, available on Netflix now. If you haven't seen it, yep. go and see it. You know, the only way this would have been any better today is if while they were digging a giant pit in the backyard <laughs> of your house. They found they witches' found like bones? 100%. <laughs> and that actually, that might explain issues at large. <laughs> the nightmare hell that I live in right now. Yes. Yes. Welcome to homeownership, my friend. No, I'm so tired of hearing that nonsense. I feel like I feel like that exists here, right? In this yep. hand gesture that no one can see. That like there's the homeownership nonsense, right? Some people get lucky and they fly in and they're just like, "Oh, I don't know what's happening." Right? That's like, you know, the skinny people who are like, "I can eat 100 cheeseburgers and I look like this." So there's yeah. like the folks who buy a new house and they're just, "Oh, this has been a dream come true." They're down here. And and then there's here, which is the the nightmare of homeownership. And then there's me, where yeah. like literally I, I, I we're getting to the point where I should have burned this to the ground. 
pissed on the ashes of this house and just built a new one. You know what I'm saying? Like that's it's, why I'm buying it's, the fifth wheel. Yeah, that's dude. I mean, yeah. It's it's that's why I travel. No, it's awful. Yeah. It's awful. It's I'm just waiting. I'm always like, you move the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. <laughs> yeah. The greatest line of that movie was, oh, you know the motel out of Route 6? Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I mean, you know, the greatest line is, this house is clear. <laughs> no, no, the, no. Ace Ventura owns that line. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he stole it. All right. I don't know. I just, I think that somewhere in your backyard, there's tunnels that lead to, you know, the mall or something. You know? <laughs> the mall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's uh, whatever. I, I, I don't need any, any other bad juju. Let's just, nope. yeah. Nope. We'll leave it there. Nope. All right. So five minutes in. Let's jump into this. We already told you what we're talking about. We're talking about the Fear Street trilogy. Uh, yeah. That was weird. The Fear Street trilogy. I think I said Fear Sheet trilogy. <laughs> Anyways, um, where can you see it? You can see it all on Netflix, all available now. So you can go there and stream all three films. Um, uh-huh. All three films rated R, all right? Yeah. Which was yes. a shock to me. Yeah, you were pretty like when you first mentioned this, I dove right in and, you know, I'm familiar with the IP, right? You know, the the next step up for R.L. Stein from from Goosebumps, right? For sure. And so I dove right in and I think I texted you and I was like, uh well, mm, this is these are rated R. You're like, no, they're not. And I was like, ah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there are. But because of that, right, like I'm totally familiar with the IP and um, I just assumed and guessed, right, especially when you're adapting a Y and I think and we'll get into this in a second, but this is kind of part of the brilliance of the Fear Street trilogy. Yeah. When you're adapting a YA IP, right, that's a lot of letters, but a young adult intellectual property right when you're adapting something that was originally a ya novel or a novel series you have a hard time getting that r rating because normally so first of all normally you're adapting something that was recently released a perfect example the twilight movies right books Mm -hmm. come out it gets optioned movies come out you have to maintain that pg-13 rating at worst because your built-in audience is that age group and is that demographic you make it r and you're gonna lose a big chunk of your built-in audience and i think to that point we we looked briefly at some point uh about the scary stories to tell in the dark movie right right we grew up with those books they're freaking terrifying in terms of the illustrations and everything into it. And the movie is just kind of bland, right? Cause it didn't, it didn't play up to the fact that the people who really love those books are now in their mid to late thirties. And I think that's exactly what you're, I think you've nailed it perfectly because uh, let's take a look here. Scary stories to tell in dark rated PG 13. Now yeah. the original, so which is in line with the target audience of the book. The books right. were released in the early 90s. 
much yep. like the Fear Street trilogy in the 90s, early 2000s. And so that audience, when you're releasing the film now, the audience that remembers those books, they are now adults. So you mm -hmm. make the movie R and you are def you're reaching your target demo, which is the people who read the books when they were teenagers and now are grown ass men and women. And so yeah. you are speaking to them now, giving them that nostalgic nod to the thing they remember, but meeting them in the place they are today. And that's what Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark failed at. And that's yeah. where I would argue this movie succeeds. Because it yeah, grew with point. its audience. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So yeah, I, let's. I definitely agree. Right. Yeah. I, there's, there's, it, it, it works on many different levels. So, but before we get into that, let, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about some numbers and some, some statistics and some fun facts. Yeah. So this will be somewhat simple, right? Because as we said, released to Netflix. Um, and this was a this was a a stumbly path for this movie, um, but since it was released on Netflix, we're not going to talk budget like we normally do because it's irrelevant. Yeah. Netflix mm -hmm. is notoriously protective and and guards their numbers, you know, with an iron fist. So we can't really speak too much to viewership, uh, ratings, or anything like that. Netflix doesn't give us that kind of numbers. Um, so really, the only thing that we really have to share. Rated R movies, um, all reasonable length, right? Somewhere between yeah. an hour and a half to two hours, shy of two hours. They vary per okay. film. And uh, Rotten Tomato numbers. And all in all, all three films did surprisingly well. So yeah. uh, part one, Fear Street Part One, 1994, gets an 82% critic score. Um, uh, part two, 1978, gets an 88%. And part three gets 90%. 1666 gets a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, let's talk about the production team. So all three films are directed by Lee Janiak. Uh, it, that name doesn't sound very familiar. Don't feel bad. Because this is kind of her first at bat in feature films. Uh, she did a, a small indie thriller uh, called Honeymoon. I think it was starring uh, Rose Leslie, um, the, mm. the chick from Game of Thrones. Um, you know, so she had done that. And then sporadic episodes, like one episode of Outcast, two episodes of Scream, the TV series, and, and then this TV series Panic. But then jumps straight into these three feature-length films, shoots them all simultaneously uh, with the plans to drop them, you know, within... Uh, initially a month of each other so uh, an ambitious undertaking for someone who really doesn't have a lot under their belt yeah but this played into her genre if you look at all those TV for sure films, for sure and, and you know she stayed in in what she knows and i think she did a great job as someone who loves horror i think she did a, a very good job in, in bringing it to life what i like to see more more gore and especially uh, 1978 going back, going back to like your Jason Voorhees series and stuff. Yeah, I would have, you know, more, uh, more child death, you know, a little more into that, but you know, it is what Good it is. God. <laughs> you hey, got... If you're going to show it, show it. Oh there my no, there God. There is no Max late night here. I don't know. I was, I had a hard time watching that little chubby nerd kid with the glasses just get 
pummeled by his uh, by his camp counselor idol. I felt so bad for that kid. Dude, he was perfect. What are you talking about? <laughs> Eats it. Perfect. Good lord, Rico. So, pause takes a dark, dark turn this week. <laughs> Remember, you invited me here. <laughs> you kind of invited yourself. <laughs> All right. <Not> the point. <laughs> Irrelevant, sir. Irrelevant. <laughs> um... All right, so uh, getting back to the production team, writers, uh, as we as we said already, based on the IP uh, by R.L. Stein, the Fear Street series, um, we'll talk a little bit more about how close this gets to it, that kind of stuff. But R.L. Stein wrote the books um, where these films are very loosely based. Uh, also, yeah. obviously famous for the Goosebump series, and this was always intended to be that next stepping stone for Goosebumps readers. Right, so you started yeah. at Goosebumps, and as you got older, moved on to Fear Street, and then as you got older, moved on to Stephen King. So it was probably right, like that was kind of the the trajectory. Or or Judy Bloom, if you decided Stephen King was too much. <laughs> oh, good, good callback. Oh, uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, nailing it, yeah. Tim. Pop, <laughs> if you saw the movies, you get it. Yeah. Um. All I right. That. I like how they pay homage to the time periods. Like I definitely dug that. Oh yeah. No, we're gonna talk more mm-hmm. about that too, and see how because I'm very curious, especially Rico has is so steeped in the horror genre, um, to kind of see how how well they they kind of uh pay the homage as it were yeah. uh to to the predecessors that paved the ways for these you know cuz these are very tradition right 1994 kind of has a screen feel when the scream movies were coming out in the late 90s early 2000s um you know 78 that sort of sleepaway camp uh yeah. you know friday the 13th vibe and then 66 kind of stands on its own but it's really part 2 of 1994 um but any regardless we'll get to that um Okay, who else? The writers. The writers of the so Phil Grazi, uh ooh, <laughs> Phil Graziati, I'm gonna go with. Um, so he's the common thread through all three films, right? Phil Graziati writes is the I would assume the lead writer um for Fear Street Parts One, Two, and Three. Uh, he's got a screen a screenplay by and story by credit for part one, story by for part two, and written by for part three. But other people come in and play along as well. Um, his credentials before Fear Street, same as, you know, he comes with uh, Lee Janiak. So he wrote Honeymoon for her, uh, which she directed, and then jumps immediately into this. Um, but that span of time, Honeymoon came out in 2014. So no writing credits from 2014 until 2021 is uh, is pretty intense. Um, yeah. Other the other writer associated uh, with part one is Kyle Killen, and again not a ton there, um, but a lot of television. Uh, he wrote on Lone Star. Uh, he wrote on Awake. He wrote on Mind Games, like multiple episodes. He is uh, the, uh, it looks like probably the head writer. He's creator of the Halo television series that's set to come out. But oh, interesting. other than that, he, you know, his other big uh, feature film is The Beaver. Uh, so he wrote yeah. The Beaver, which was the Jodie Foster and <laughs> Mel Gibson movie. Um, let's see. Uh, so then jumping into part two, again, Phil Graziati 
kind of comes through. But then you have uh, director Lee Janiak gets a writing credit there. So she, you know, threw her weight into it. And we have Zach Okowitz. So uh, now Zach Okowitz, not a ton, right? This was his first writing credit, but he was one of the co-producers of that horror flick, uh, Lights Out, which was mm. fairly uh, decent. I dug it. Yeah, yeah. I so I I'm wondering if he gets brought on maybe as a punch-up writer, right? Like mm. he brings the expertise of the horror genre and come in to kind of add a little bit more oomph to the script. Um, because given that he doesn't have any other writing credits, I would imagine that's probably where he plays his role. Well, and I think, too, if you bring in somebody who might have a little bit more of season to them, part two is going for a classic feel, right? right. So it, it's, it, it's, more, it's more sticking to a, to a formula. So I think if you want to bring somebody who has some chops in that area, that might make sense. And I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, one, he produced one horror film fairly yeah. recently, but that's not, you know, maybe he's, he's got that passion for it and just, yeah. and is steeped in it in terms of what he enjoys watching. But anyways, again, not a lot of depth in this roster across the board, right? Directors, writers, all of it is, it's real fresh, which maybe does this uh, a positive service in that, you know, this is a fresh approach to filmmaking, really. Um, yeah. And then part three, just to touch on it, again, Phil Graziati, uh, Lee Janiak, both writing here, along with Kate Treffy. And Kate, uh, now, here's, so what's interesting here, again, probably brought in to punch up the script, but she has significant writing credits uh, from Stranger Things. And mm. for folks who don't know, Lee Janiak is married to Stranger Things co-creator, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so there's connections there. Some of the actors in the films kind of have their start from Stranger Things. Yep. So, uh, yeah, yeah, right. So we see a lot of connections there. And uh, and she was brought on to help out with part three, 1666. Uh, other than that, she wrote two shorts uh, before this. So um, nothing, uh, nothing substantial there in terms of, you know, like horror film, feature film. um experience right mm -hmm. all right so that's the team those are the numbers let's jump in to the meat and taters uh and as always as we always do word of warning if you haven't seen the film yet uh or films in this case spoiler alert we're gonna talk openly about these movies and rather than trying to uh, curb ourselves here since it is a deep dive. Um, if you haven't seen it and you don't dig spoilers, I would recommend you go check out the movies first and then come back here and check out this episode next. Yeah. Yeah. All right, boys. Are we ready? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, fun fact number one. And here's the big one. And this is what I found really interesting because this was a very ambitious undertaking, these movies. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think if you're going down the route uh, that that I think you are, really sort of solidified one of the things thoughts that I had throughout this, which was I thought this was probably near the top in terms of Netflix original content. Like I thought this was very, very, very good for Netflix content. Right. Not knowing anything else about it, 
I was really impressed with the fact that this was Netflix content. Right, right. Rico, what were your initial thoughts on these? Uh, so when I originally saw them, I was like, ah, uh, it's just going to be another like craptastical kind of, you know, shoddy, uh, shoddy filming and whatnot. But I started watching the first one. I was like, this is, this is actually pretty decent. I thought they paid great homage uh, to what came before and whatnot. I mean, this, the time period and the, and the small details from the music to the video games to internet being created and, and chat rooms and stuff. I was like, they actually did their homework and to really, you know, push that. Um, I was, I was very surprised, very surprised. And I just wanted to keep watching uh, the other two do it. Yeah. So how these got made is actually a fascinating story. We sit here and we think about it, and I agree with you both. Like, you know, I thought in terms of quality and stuff, it's decent, especially for a Netflix original, right? Like, this is mm -hmm. certainly upper crust of the Netflix original films. Yeah, but that's not how this yeah. started, right? So, yeah. um, and in terms of how come, uh, how come Lee didn't do anything since 2014 when she did Honeymoon. And that's because she's been attached to this project for quite some time. Uh, and her writing partner, Phil Graziati, who we just talked about, both of them attached to this project early on. Um, uh, so she does Honeymoon in 2014. It's fairly successful, particularly for an indie horror. And so she's immediately you know, being asked, what's next for you? And she has mm -hmm. the idea to develop the Fear Street series into a trilogy film. And her intention is always to uh, to do the films back-to-back -back and release them back-to-back. -back. So initially, the idea was we release them for like a summer of horror series and they come out on monthly intervals, right? So one in June, one July, one in August. And we sort of market them that way. Now... Sure. In 2015, it gets picked up by Chernin Entertainment, right? And you may not know the name, but Chernin Entertainment has a long-standing or had a long-standing deal with 20th Century Fox, uh, which started back in like 2015, maybe. Um, or that's okay. rather that's when. So in 2015, Chernin kind of options it; they take it on. They're going to produce it and and develop it. And they have a standing deal with 20th Century Fox. Um, now, Chernin has done other hits for Fox, including Planet of the Apes, that new trilogy, um, mm -hmm. Hidden Figures, Greatest Showman, things like that. So on the yeah. heels of all these hits, they now get tasked with this film series. And Janiac and uh, Graziati come on board in 2017 to actually craft the trilogy and come up with this innovative schedule, right? Now, they're working through this process. Now, keeping in mind, right, how is this going to work? When is the last time that you saw a major theatrical release that drops sequels 30 days apart, right? What's, how's, what's 20th Century Fox going to do with this? How are they going to market this? What are I theaters going to do, right? I mean, even the Star Wars re-release in the 90s, right? Movies that have been out for 30 years at that point were two years apart in, in their re-releases in the theaters. So right? there is no there's no precedent for something like this at all. And I mean, what well, kind no, of a I, I, I think, you know, it's the perfect time and platform to be able to do it. Because if you look at, you know, streaming capabilities now, now you have the coronavirus pandemic 
which more people are watching Netflix and Amazon Prime and Voodoo. And oh, no, I totally no. agree that the way it releases is great. But what I'm saying, Rico, is that the initial intention, right, back in 2017, is that these are going to drop in 2020 in the summer in theaters. This is before pandemic or any of that stuff. So, like, it's an ambitious undertaking from Jump because there's no precedent for theaters to air first-run major studio releases where the sequels are coming out 30 days later, like that gives you zero, you know, leg time for the yeah, one that, that just dropped. Time and you, lose, you know, a lot of, a lot of revenue in between them. Right. You know, between opening weekend and, you know, your, your month. And when they start posting on whatever, you know, uh, charts and stuff like that. And so you're yeah, killing, I mean, the, the theater runtime, like the theater runtime isn't huge anymore, but like, because the, but then it was, well, sure, but at the same time, but, like, with social media kind of being what it is, word of mouth spreads quick. How many times, you know, like, back in the day, you know, even a Garbage Pail movie would get a decent theatrical run and make good money because you didn't really know it sucked until you went and saw it. Whereas now the, it's, like, the, in seconds we, we hear whether a movie's good or bad. But what does the press cycle look for something like that? Exactly. <laughs> like... So, and that's exactly right. So you're, you're cutting your back end short, right? Because, you know, uh, three, four weeks after you drop a major film, you're dropping its sequel. So no one's going to go see the first one anymore. At least half your audience, people who maybe would see it twice, they're going to go see the second one instead, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's an interesting dynamic there, but regardless, none of this really comes to pass as we know, because Filming goes into production early March of 2019. So early mm -hmm. March of 2019, uh, filming starts in Georgia. We're trucking on Fear Street 1994. And 20 days later, March 20th, right, the news drops that 20th Century Fox has been acquired and merged with Disney. So now yep. all of a sudden, Lee Janiac is doing an R-rated horror film, right, and her yep. boss just went from Fox to Disney. <laughs> and so her question is, hey, how many horror movies has Disney done? And B, how many R-rated horror movies has Disney done? Um, I would argue to date, your scariest thing is uh, Frankenweenie or uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe Pinocchio. I mean, the I scene know. where he turns into a donkey terrified me. I did scar my my cousin for life the first time we tried to watch Nightmare Before Christmas, and that clown tore off his face, and he ran for the hills. So. I mean, that is a good point. Nightmare is <laughs> that movie does get intense. I don't know the last the last scene at Fantasia, man. I was yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm just saying, nothing is scarier than when those boys turn into donkeys in Pinocchio. That That's fair. Ruined me. So now Janiac is freaking out, right? Because here's this project, they're already in production, but are they going to have a distributor? Or is, there gonna, or is this just going to get pulled and shelved because Disney's not in the market of releasing these films? Um, yeah. Either way, it takes a long time for the politics to play out, and they end up finishing filming on all three films and starting post-production in around August of 2019. Post-production gets started, and everything is eyes on releasing uh, June of 2020. And then, mm -hmm. as Rico pointed out, the world ends. And so now, not <laughs> only 
right? Not only do you have a merger that you're contending with, not only is your production company, distribution company, and all of that Disney, uh, but now you have a global pandemic. And the, mm-hmm. the notion of going to theaters is absurd, and that's just not going to happen. So yes. I don't know the details as to how or why, right? But effectively, Chernin is, I'm assuming, given the option of, okay, you've got a new boss now. Do you want to continue a relationship with Disney, or do you want to go and take your stuff in development somewhere else? Netflix had been chomping at the bit to get their hands on Fear Street from jump. But because of Chernin's deal with 20th Century Fox, they never stood a chance, right? I'm assuming yeah. Fox has right of first refusal and they weren't letting go of this one. But suddenly Netflix is back in the game. They acquire, uh, they strike a deal with Chernin and acquire uh, Fear Street in the process. And the rest is history, man. The one change that they wanted to make was they didn't want a month apart each sequel they wanted a week they wanted it to play a lot more episodic and uh and play a lot faster which i think is yeah. a brilliant choice and oh, it, was, it was perfect it couldn't have found a better home like literally tears from heaven like this is sweet sweet manna well so take what i said before and now let's let's flip it and reverse it the okay missy yeah right uh, the as, as this becomes, like I said, top crust Netflix, right? Right. But at the same time now, I see this getting buried at the box office. Even, even released in a more traditional manner, there's not a box office draw here. I mean, I think there are three names off the bat or three faces off the bat that you're going to recognize from other things. And that is, you know, Maya Hawk from her turn in the last season of, of stranger things and her Hollywood pedigree, but she's in this for five minutes at the beginning oh, of 1994. Waste of use yeah, of absolutely. Um, and then Sadie sink from her turn in stranger things, uh, in the, uh, last one season, last two seasons of stranger things. Um, and then, and then the, um, uh, Frank, you pointed out, uh, the Jillian person Jacobs. who plays the, yeah, Jillian Jacobs as the older um, character that Sadie Sink plays. Um, so there's not a, there's not a draw here. Even the Goosebumps movies had you know Jack Black. So I'm not sure that this gets any sort of pull at a at a theater release. I, I mean, I would have waited. I would have said, "Oh, I'll wait till this comes out and I'll watch it Halloween." You know, something like that. I wouldn't have paid to see this. I wouldn't have paid to see it three times over simply because this wouldn't have grabbed my interest if I had to go see it in the movie theater. Yeah, it doesn't have a strong marketable talent, and this casting is locked in when the film goes into yeah. production thinking that it belongs to 20th Century Fox. So, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. It's it's odd, and I think this movie fails abysmally in the theater, but succeeds beyond their wildest hopes on their new home in Netflix. As And as Rico yeah. was talking about, you know, with this new age of consumption and everything, this is, this is the perfect place for it. It's, it is hard. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this at all is it's almost, once you've seen it, it's impossible to imagine this anywhere else. It's impossible yeah. to imagine this as anything but a Netflix original, impossible to imagine it releasing anywhere, but directly onto Netflix. And it's, it's just, it's almost weird. Right? Yeah. Yep. Just like they saw it coming. Like there was some great witch's ball. Right. That just was like pandemics coming. 
one right after the other. Give it to them all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the brilliance too, right? So uh, Lee Janiak talks about it a lot. She's like, she had been dreading uh the reality of trying to execute this idea that she had to release it seri like a serialized monthly release she's just like this has never been done like what are the theaters going to do like the the classic distribution model doesn't work with this so that was going to be a massive hurdle and she ends up being able to sidestep it because Netflix is all about bucking the trend and doing whatever the hell they want um yeah. which is it's absolutely brilliant Yep. Yeah, because the only time you ever really like came close to seeing any of this was like in the seventies and eighties for drive-ins or cheap movie theaters. For sure. Running back to back road uh what do they call them? Uh, grindhouse. Yeah, grindhouse movies and stuff. And that's that's what it felt like to me. Like it felt like a almost like a throwback and like an homage, whether they meant it or not, to like going to see because I remember going to see those and you know paying three dollars and going to see two movies and you're like yeah but this one you get three all about it right yeah for 11.99 and i'll argue it's technically maybe even four movies because even though in name 1666 is really 1666 plus 1994 and so it ends up being like four distinct stories so you could really cut this like i did it in three straight nights right but you could cut this into four if you really wanted to like to to kind of preserve it um i don't know or you could be a man tim and you do them all in one night that's true that's how i yeah i did do that again i I did it the first time and the second time i've seen it twice yeah, me too. It's really easy to get through, um, and I so so I've sort of tried to put myself in the 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 mindset of like if I had watched this in Netflix real time, right, and and had to wait, and I can't really do it because I really enjoyed just like kind of plowing through it and just watching it in one long sweep. Um, so I that that also begs the question of like this really. I mean, they pulled it off. It just wasn't built for a regular release of years apart. I just don't think it ever would have, I would have never gotten a part three. I think if, if I had to wait six years or something to, to get the full trilogy. No, absolutely. And I think it also, it also pays tribute to, um, you know, to avoid using the word homage again, but it's, uh, it pays tribute to the, to the sense of nostalgia, right? Like when you came home and you watched whatever show you watched the next week, it was going to, you know, air, it was a two parter and you had to wait. Right. And there'd be yeah. the recap and then you'd come in and then you see the second part, but you weren't waiting a year. It was just another week. And it, it just, it felt, I felt watching it the way I felt, you know, reading books like this as a kid or watching things like this as a kid. And like Rico was talking about how he felt about going to the drive-in and seeing, yeah. uh, you know, watching movies like this two at a time and such and such. So you know, it's uh, it's it's perfect. It's brilliantly done, and it's absolutely great. And I think that really plays, it plays heavily into certainly my and I, and it sounds like all of our opinions of the movie itself, right? There's yeah. there's plenty here to be critical about for sure, but I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. The nostalgia, I think the way it makes you feel, the tone of it, also um, just how different it is in terms of its release and, and how it tells the story, the narrative structure of kind of giving you the end and then taking you through the process through in the sequels, kind of going back to fill in the gaps in the holes. Um, yeah. 
there's a lot there to really like and sink your teeth into, and I feel like it helps you forgive some of its sins. Yeah, let's let's roll with that um, the, the the format for a second because I think that was off the bat the one thing that I really enjoyed the most was this kind of backwards play through it you know where i think in a traditional horror movie you get this off the jump right you get the full story of you know the witch and you know this is why it's cursed and this is why things are and now let's set it right but we've reversed that right and now there's trial and error through that and then you're getting these pieces told by people as they come into the story and i think that builds it up to the end being a bigger payoff than it actually necessarily is, I think, to hmm. a degree. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a decent twist to it, and I was definitely surprised by the way it ends, um, and I thought it was well done, but I think a lot of that lends itself from the format, right? Like, I think it's, it's built up to be more of like, oh, man, this is a twist, but more so of a twist because of the way it's told to you, right? And, and the generations of people that have gone through this believing one thing to then have the rug pulled out for you on, you know, at the end and have it be kind of completely different. So I really did enjoy that. And I, I really enjoyed the second part the most because you started to see those threads connect, right? There were characters that you started to like, Oh, wait a minute. He was in the first one. Now he's in the second one. Okay. That's interesting. It's beyond just being a resident of this town, right? Um, the nurse at the summer camp, she showed up in the, first in 1994 and you're like huh what's that all about like there's just little things that you started to connect and it kept me engaged because I wanted to make those connections right I wanted to piece those things together and, and see how these stories fit in but there's also so much right there's so much backstory in all of this you come to find out there's hundreds of years of bewitched Satan murderers that the 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 canon of this this story is could go on forever, and so the stories that they pulled from, you never knew what was going to sort of pop up next. Um, so I just the, the the story felt very expansive, and it felt like it had a lot of places to go. And being told in the way it did really kind of beefed up the overall payoff for me. Hmm. Yeah, because I I think it was definitely paced very well. I yeah. mean, because you know, depending on what kind of horror genre you like, slasher thriller or anything like that this one was paced as a a slasher but it gave you also the thriller side of it i mean because mm. throughout throughout the, the the all three series they kept referencing stephen king so even though this is rl stein i honestly believe in this it was a stephen king kind of because if you read i'd read i've read a lot of stephen king quite a bit i just finished the the gunslinger series for the third time. So, and I just finished it the other day. So them playing that timeline fits very, very well into that Stephen King homage of the horror genre. Yeah. It works very well. And I, I appreciate that a lot because you're talking about one of the, one of the Kings of horror in writing and where I'm sure R.L. Stein was very much influenced by Stephen King. Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so, okay, we've talked a bit about the structure. Let's try to pivot a little bit into the meat of the films themselves, focusing still on what we think works. And I think mm. 
maybe perhaps the easiest way to do it maybe we go chronological maybe we say which one we like no we'll save that for the for last let's start yeah, chronologically yeah, yeah. what takes yeah. place in these movies um so we open up with part one 1994 um the quick synopsis from imdb as we tend to do uh is do 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 okay a circle of teenage friends accidentally encounter the ancient evil responsible for a series of brutal murders that have plagued their town over 300 years welcome to shady side so basically what's happening right is we meet our lead dina um Dina is a high school kid and she we kind of enter the story where she is going through a breakup messy type drama with her girlfriend Samantha. Uh Sam has moved to the neighboring town of Sunnyvale. Yeah, mm -hmm. Sunnyvale. And yeah. um and in doing so, right, this is kind of like the Springfield Shelbyville, the whatever it is, right? You've got the good side, the bad side of the tracks. Uh, shady the kids, the poor kids. Right. Yeah. So Shady Side is this cursed town, as it says, the 300 years of being cursed by this evil, this ancient evil. Um, whereas Sunnyvale is this prosperous whatever town. So she moves to the to the rich side, right? To the rich mm -hmm. town. And, yep. and so now they're effectively worlds apart. And, yes. and so this leads us in, but almost immediately, right, we, we get, we, we jump off with, with, yeah. uh, you know, well, actually we open up with the murders, right, at this, yep. at this mall. And it's kind of weird and, and untold. And that's kind of how we found out, like, this is like the kill capital of the world. Yeah. And immediately we start down this path of figuring out that this curse has weight to it, Right. There's a yeah. witch, uh, Sarah Fear, who, you know, 300 years ago was hung. Uh, she was innocent. She was hung. She put a curse on the town, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the town has been mired by this, you know, just poverty and death, right? There's constantly mm -hmm. murders and killers and all this stuff that comes out of Shadyside. And, and so now they're caught in the middle. Because they've stumbled yep. across like this burial ground, they've seen these bones, their blood is touched, whatever, and now these you know ancient evils, these risen serial killers, are after them to kill them, and they need to try to break the curse to save themselves, uh, you know, before it's too late. Yep. In the process of that, so that's that's effectively ninety four. Um, yeah. You get to the end, you think you have some resolution, you find out it isn't over, and so we need to dive a little deeper into the history that fuels all this, and that's what takes yep. us into part two, seven, uh, 1978, which was yep. the previous mass murder. Before this, uh, before this Shadyside Mall massacre, we have this mm -hmm. Camp Nightwing or whatever uh, murder. And, mm -hmm. and so we kind of follow the thread there and get a little bit more insight into this witch and all this kind of stuff. And then we finish up with 1666, which takes us all the way back. We see the story of Sarah Fear. We see how the curse begins. And like Tim was saying, at the halfway point, we switch to 1994 part two, where we see how it all ties back in together. And we finally put a bow on everything that we were introduced to in the first film. Yep. So we talked about the structure and how well it works. How did you guys feel about the movies themselves in terms sure. of what worked? Let's start with Rico. So uh, 1994 starting out, um, I really enjoyed 
um, how they kind of tied it in. 1994 was kind of like a uh, a Halloween meets you know retro 90s for me because all of us here, Tim, I'm not sure how old you are, but the 90s were definitely a very influential. That's where you get the the start of the internet chat rooms and whatnot, where you know certain things like uh, like let's take uh, Dina and Sam's relationship, where that kind of thing becomes more prominent and whatnot. So all that tying in, like I, I, I dug it. Like I, I really enjoyed 94. Tim, your thoughts on 94. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we, you and I talked a little bit prior. Um, and so I had a little knowledge going in that universally <laughs> when, when polled, it sounded like people were, were preferring 78 followed by 1666 with 94 being like the weakest or the least favored amongst what reviews you and I had kind of peaked at prior to, to, to watching. Yeah. 78 um, was like the clear favorite 66 gets second place because they like the tie-ins and yeah. 94 gets third place. It's sort of the weakest of the bunch. So on first blush, I think that's sort of where I ended up thinking that 94 was the weakest. And I think that was simply because 94 suffers for the art of the other two or for the art of the overall story, right? 94 Hmm. serves to set up and set the building blocks for the rest of the story. And so you kind of go through some of 94 and on a second watch, appreciate it more for what it is. And I actually end up really liking it on a second watch. Um, to Rico's point, it fits really well with the time period that it's in. Um, and Frank, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, it's like a kind of scream kind of element to it. I even take it a step further and rem- it really reminds me of, of more recent horror-ish movies in terms of like the Happy Death Day series when we covered those or a little bit like the Freaky movie. Yeah. It's just kind of got that, sort of a, a a funny kind of bent to it while still being a, a, a pretty good, you know, slasher type movie. My issues with saying it suffers is that there are just holes in it that I really struggled with. And some of the acting to me was a little subpar at parts. Um, but again, on a second watch, I grew to appreciate it a lot more. <laughs> Um, so it definitely it's grown on me and I don't think it's my least favorite part either anymore. So I think I've, I've flipped it and I probably actually do put it in second, if not third, if I'm considering part two of 1666, it's, it's separate sort of thing. Yeah, so I think from jump, I kind of bucked the trend, right? So yeah. uh, 78, so the universal thought was 78's the best, 66 second place, and then 94 third. I, I, I think I put 1994 firmly in my favorite of the three. And I think it's because I went into this with such low expectations to begin with that I felt like something that 94 did smartly, and I agree with you, right? If we're talking about some of the negatives, um, you know, there's weaknesses in the storytelling. There's questionable, you know, elements, you know, in terms of like, you know, does this really pay tribute well to 94? Does this really feel like a movie from 1994? That kind of stuff. But, uh, and the acting for sure. I, I think the acting in 1994 is the weakest, of yeah. hand, hands down, hands down. Um, but... 
I think it knew that about itself. And I think mm. part of what it brought to the table was that it gave you a really campy slasher flick. And where it kind of felt 90s and nostalgic to me, same way of like the Scream movies and such, is that, you know, it just, it didn't overthink things. Um, yeah. I think Fred Heckinger as Simon is a scene stealer. Uh, yeah. He is annoying and and yes. cheesy for sure but plays his part really well and i found myself laughing quite a bit i mean one of the scenes that almost it almost killed me is when they're all getting dressed at the school or whatever and uh what's his face josh and kate end up making out yep. the bathroom uh dina yep. and sam are getting it on in some classroom and he's kind of having like a buffalo bill style moment in the bathroom 100%. and i'm like what is happening and he's kind of like you know would you bug me? you know and he's like touching yeah. himself and dancing in his tidy <laughs> he's putting the chapstick on and so like he you know and i'm like is he about to rub one out but it cuts away whatever <laughs> when he when he runs into everybody outside he's like wait a minute did you all go to pound town <laughs> and he goes so did i or he goes me too <laughs> and i lost it. and that for me it encapsulated what worked in this movie which I mean was it was funny and camp and like you said more in the vein of happy death day and um which is far better acted and far better written um but also you know freaky and some of these other ones where it is it's a play on the genre and i appreciated yeah. that more because again i went into it with such low expectations that i was i was expecting trash i wasn't expecting to laugh and have a good time i thought 1994 was a good time you know what i mean and I mean, I, I can't knock it. It gets extra points for giving me uh, my catchphrase for the rest of my life, Get um, it. which I can't. Can I, do you want me to say it? Of course you I want it. you to say it, Tim. Okay. That's why you so, have it now. So I told Frank that forever, he, when he watches this first one, he's going to figure out my catchphrase for the rest of this, my life. And it is thanks to Fred's character of Simon uh, when he says, let's Timothy this bitch. And I but will also now the delivery. He just walks yeah. into the, the ambulance. He's like, let's Timothy this bitch. And it's such a great callback because they've been talking about this Timothy kid that they brought yeah. back to life, right? Like, right. there's, and that's, he yeah, the callbacks are great. There's some really funny one liners, you know. And again, I, I think the reason why Kiana Madeira hits so strongly as a negative as Dina is because it almost feels like. She and Olivia Scott Welsh as Samantha are are the only two trying to make a good movie and like trying to act, but they're yeah. not really great actors. Whereas everybody yes. else is just bringing the fun and the funny and it's campy. The kills are solid, right? Yeah. When when oh, a yeah. character eats it in a bread slicer, when somebody oh, right like he was glorious. Yes, Glorious. there's some great gore and horror elements, and it also to speak to to Rico's kind of background, it also had an element of Evil Dead and and Ash versus whatever because you know uh, what's his face Bruce Campbell has always brought a camp and a comedy to mm -hmm. a movie that is really carried by its physical horror and its 
gore yes. and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah. it felt very much that. And, and so yeah. that helped me forgive a lot of sins. Like yes. the fact that we're spending a whole time running around some stupid grocery store with X's on our chests so that two characters can die instead of taking a ride in the ambulance where you have a hundred different ways you can kill this girl and about three different ways you can bring her back to life without any ancient evil creatures chasing after you at all. You could have just kicked back and like watched episodes of The Office while killing and restoring this child to life in an ambulance, safe and sound, movie over. Or the fact that they make her choke down handfuls of pills when, you know, they couldn't get her a bottle of Yoohoo or something from the cooler cabinet four feet away. <laughs> Clutch that your go-to uh, suicide <laughs> drink is Yoohoo. Ugh. You know, I would bring up Fred. Do you know who he reminded me of? The, the character? Who? Matthew Lillard. Yes! Oh. Yes! Yeah! Yes. That's a that good pull. Matthew Lillard from Scream. All the way from Scream. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Absolutely. The whole time I was watching, I was like, this would have been perfect. He definitely nails the, the best one-liners in that one. Uh, when he runs into the killer of Ruby Lane, and he's like, she was so crazy, but she bitch was so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so hot. I couldn't help it. She's so hot. Um, you know, I was like kindred spirit, yeah, right there. But I mean, and that's the point. Like, it's really, I, I think, if you go into it expecting a horror movie, you're gonna be disappointed. You're gonna be angry, and that's not what '94 was trying to do, right? Scream yeah. had a lot of weird, funny moments, right? Um, you know, Jamie, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, what's his name? Jamie, who's the guy who plays like the movie, the cinephile? Oh, uh, uh, uh. Oh. Come on. Malibu's most wanted. Yeah. Jamie Kennedy? Jamie, Jamie Kennedy. Jamie Kennedy. Okay. Thank you, sir. You know, so Jamie Kennedy had like a campy, funny role. Um, we talked about Matthew Lillard. So anyways, it's, you know, it, it, that was well in line um, and in the vein of the screams and the I Know What You Did Last Summers and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. where, you know, it was just camp and go. Now, those are better movies for sure. Uh, I'm not trying to say that this one was better than that, but I think it, I think it caught and it and it made the best of uh, what a movie of that era would have been, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking to that and to kind of move quickly through the last ones as we approach time here, arguably the best written, the best acted, and the best overall movie standalone for sure is 1978. Yeah, the oh, reason yeah. I put oh, that. Yes, but the reason I put it second is just there's just something magical about 1994. It made me laugh. 1978, the holes and the the inconsistencies and the weak points stand out more to me because it doesn't have the comedic element to make you say, "Oh, this movie is aware that it's not that great and is laughing mm. at itself." This one, I think it's judged more critically by me because it was a stronger movie, a better acted movie, a better written movie, um, but it didn't have that comedic element. And so therefore, there wasn't an, there was there weren't a lot of places for for the mistakes and the and the things to hide, right? Yeah, I so think that's that, fair. No. I, I I think 78 is absolutely the better movie in in the trilogy. Um, I think the more I think about it, there's no place for comedy in this one because of the way right. that it's told. It is told from the perspective of 
uh, of a character who survived it, right? So at no point would there be something that is comedic to her retelling this, right? And I feel like that mm. would cheapen her experience to have you know, some throwaway funny moments. And, you know, they try and lighten it a little bit, you know, between Ziggy um, and uh, Sheila and, you know, that whole thing where they like trap her in the, 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 the outhouse and drop yeah, bugs and on her. her right. Yeah. yeah. Like they try and do some light moments like that, but the entirety of this story and all of the characters in it are dark and tortured people and they're all going through something. So there's really not any part of 78 that is light in any sort of way. And for some reason it did grab me. Now I I agree. 94 was a lot more fun, but 78 had my intention and I was just riveted through it. And part of that, like I said before, was drawing those connections, right? Trying to figure out what, you know, are there pieces here that are, that are showing me parts of the story? Um, I just, I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, And as a standalone made sense, you know, I could watch that on my own and not need to watch the rest of it. What were you going to say, Rico? Yeah, Yeah, I have to agree, but the holes and, and, and whatnot, that you found in it is that's that's an exact throwback to that eras of movies. I mean, mm. uh, Friday the Thirteenth. How many times could you have just been like, mm, close the door? How about not follow that? A hundred, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, when it, it, it plays into exactly what it it was. You know, yes, it's it's extremely dark. I would like to have gone darker, but that's just who I am. That's how that's that's how I like my horror. It's extremely dark. We heard and a little bit about that was, already, buddy. We don't need to. Yeah, it is. We don't need to go back there. Seventy-eight was was my favorite as far as the setup in ninety-four. I think ninety-four set up seventy-eight perfectly. Yeah, as far as you know, starting to, to put the pieces together. Because I never, if your name is good, you are not good. It's, it's <laughs> that. It's that. I thing. mean, he has that look on his face, like mm, Navra. You know something. That's there, the stuff. That's the stuff I do hate about it. But it's it's true to the book. It's true to the style of the books anyway. Well, and it's the yeah, like the sheriff. Good, you know, they're the sunny veiled devils and the shady side witches. I'm like, who's witches, gonna name yeah. their mascot after this like legendary curse on their t- anyway? Well, so you're you're going down that realm that 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 lane of something that I talked about with you previously is that there is still slight incongruencies that permeate this between it being rated R and based on a teen fiction, Mm. right? Like there's some of that stuff that is not really cringe, but you're like, "Eh," right. And that to me just highlights the, the source material as being more juvenile, but you've clearly pumped it up into R and that is clear in 78, like 78, takes part it takes 94 and and really bumps it up like the kills are 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 brutal i mean acts to the face of arnie like gets his skull split three times it could have been juicier but i mean he gets blasted um and then the sex scenes too right that sort of come out of nowhere like you're like oh oh they're they're really they're really banging it out here in their cabin. Like, well, but, but funnily enough, right? yeah, but oddly enough too, it's like, yeah, they're really going to work, but at the same time, you don't see anything. Yeah. And, right. and, and I think, uh, you, get a, slight boobs. you get slight boobs. 
I, I, I mean, oh, real. the one, yeah, the girl who bangs the counselor, right? The Sunnydale. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One from Sunnydale, yeah, yeah. one from, you know. Yeah, shady side. But, yeah, shady so there's side. a there tiny go. bit of nude. But I think a couple of things to note, right? Tonally, that is super in line with the slashers of the 70s uh, and oh, 80s yeah. because that was, I mean, horror movies were guaranteed boobs. Um, yep. Also, too, having sex was how you got killed in those movies. Yep. Um, the other thing, too, is tonally in terms of how it relates back to the IP, you know, the Fear Street series was R.L. Stein started introducing more, you know, adult themes, you know, because there were the things that teens were starting to go through, right? There mm -hmm. wasn't, like, outright sex, per se, but the kills got a little bit more intense, more of the supernatural, more of the horror element, and a lot more of the exploration of the sexual side of, you know, puberty and growing up and that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly more so than the childish books of Goosebumps. Um, mm -hmm. So these films ramp that up as well. But, you know, it's still very much in line with what R.L. Stein put forth in the original books. Um you know, and again, Tim, you made a really great point that I hadn't thought about before. It makes perfect sense. This is a more serious story because we have a haunted, troubled person telling the story, right? Yeah. And and this is, you know, it's 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 easy to forget that the entirety of 1978 is a direct first person retelling by the person who survived it. Uh, we're just yeah. watching it play out dramatized per se um mm -hmm. in, in the movie and so you know again another brilliant choice in how you put the film forward um and i think certainly you know it's easy to judge them one against the other and to judge particularly the first one very harshly but i would argue like each one of these movies really serves its purpose really well and mm -hmm. and and on their own uh you know they do what they're supposed to do but again 1978 for sure uh the the best of the bunch if you are looking critically at each one individually um yeah i still argue just not as fun as 1994 yeah. was absolutely so that brings so, us well, to 16 oh looking. go ahead go ahead sorry i'll say it depends on what you're looking for if you're looking for yeah. the straight you know 70s slasher yeah 78 is gonna 70s and 80s yes that's gonna be your go-to but if you're looking for more of a of a you know thriller meets you know horror yeah 94 is gonna be gonna be your yeah, thing you know i would I mean? argue yeah 78 you're never gonna be mad you saw 78 i think it, it no. that kind of scratches the itch no matter what i think you gotta be in the mood for 94 and i went into it not not really having a mood and so i was pleasantly surprised by what i got but uh, but I can absolutely see uh, ninety four. You've got to be in the in the right mindset for it. Whereas seventy eight, it's going to hit the notes no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm thinking back just to our last episode where we talked about part one and part two of Quiet Place, right? And mm. you know, you have these dangers with you know parts, right? It, it, do you carry the tone of the first one through the other one, or uh, and then you run the risk of it being the same movie, right? Or you depart enough, like, you know, we talked about Kill Bill a little bit, how part two is completely different tonally and aesthetically than part one, right? And this doing what it does, does exactly that, right? So you get that solid slasher movie in two, and then you get that movie 
in part one that is different and a different feel. And again, I, I, it makes makes it really easy to watch, right? I watch, could watch them again pretty quickly because they are so different, but they're telling the same story. And so it is like, it's like a, like a, uh, a tub of Neapolitan ice cream, right? Each one had a different flavor and you're cool going back and switching between them because they work so well together, but independently they're their own unique thing. I think you mean Napoleon ice cream, Tim. I believe sure. it's Napoleon. Except it's not. It's Neapolitan, but okay. Yeah. But I mean, come on. Everyone called it. <laughs> like who didn't think it was Napoleon? Right? I know. When you were a kid and you were like, wait a minute. That's not how you spell Napoleon. I had to, think, I had, I had to make myself say Neapolitan. So Yeah, you sure did, didn't you? <laughs> um, Look it up, Google it. Um, <laughs> oh, there's a T in there. I'm pretty sure there's a T in there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. let's Timothy this bitch. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, okay, let's jump in and finish up with 1666. Uh, yeah. and, and I know we're, we're hitting these with the broad strokes, but you know, to be honest, there's not a lot of meat on these bones anyway. This, these are very straightforward, uh, very yeah. easy to digest movies. If we talk too much about any one, we're going to spoil them for sure. Um, yeah. But I think we'll linger primarily on some of the negatives in 1666 because, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of those tie back into 94 and 78. And I think we see a lot of the weaknesses play out here. Um, so let's use this to start to really also uh, kind of highlight, you know, some of the negatives of not only sure. 1666, but the series as a whole. Yeah. So 1666 for me is now officially my least favorite part of my second watch through. Mm -hmm. um, at least the first half of 1666, where we are in 1666. Um, and mainly there are two reasons the accents are <laughs> cringy yeah they're, they they're rough like hard to listen to cringy and add on top of that the recasting or the double casting of characters from the first two movies as in some cases ancestors in some cases different relatives in some case completely different characters and from a production standpoint i get that frank and i had a whole long conversation about why money wise and budgetary wise that probably made sense for what they were doing um and you know in a best or worst case scenario there are pros and cons to doing it both ways for me it just feels weird and feels awkward and the more I tried to explain it and the more we tried to talk it through, it just, it just feels clunky. Um, and while it does serve to really kind of give you some aha, good twist moments to really set up these final boss battles and, and, and really bring it all home. I found it a slog to get through and I found it kind of, controversial for needless reasons and i think there were cleaner ways to kind of get to the same points in the story that we were getting to so for me it felt like very much the witch i mm. i know i know who else wasted their money on that movie buying it but no uh, idea yeah. brother so, i can so as far as the double casting and stuff i i know they were going trying to go for that deal of like 
we've always been friends. We are always meant to be friends and blah, 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 blah. But I just, I, I, I could have cared less. Like I, you know, I enjoyed the plot twists in it and stuff like that. Like I do think it was kind of clunky, but it was also very much telling. I mean, it mm. wasn't hard to put two to two together. I mean, it was guy lives out in the woods all by himself, blah, blah, blah. You have some random witch and you find her book and it's, it wasn't hard. I mean, what I like to see it gone a couple of different ways. Yeah. But with what they had, I mean, I, I didn't mind it. I definitely enjoyed the second half of 1666 better than, you know, the actual of, of being in there. But, you know, for what it was, I mean, it, it, you know, exactly. It is what it is. It's just, you know, trying to get through to get to the second half of the story. Mm. And I think that's spot on, right? It reminded me a lot of that book in a series that sucks, but you got to read it just to get to the end of the series, right? It's yeah. You need the information. You need to fill in the gaps. You need to to understand the whys. And even though you know maybe it's not your favorite overall, it serves its purpose. And I think sixteen sixty six serves its purpose. Um, things that I had a problem with, you know, I really struggled with the double casting. Um, as I told you, Tim, and and you mentioned just a second ago. Financially, it makes perfect sense, right? We already yeah. have a cast for 1994. We had to pay a cast for 1778. We're going to pay a third cast to pay these characters for half of a movie of 1666, right? Yeah. Or are we just going to reuse the kids from the first one and have them play their ancestors? The problem with it was that it wasn't consistent down the line, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for example... Um, uh, you know, uh, Kiana Madeira, she plays not only Dina in the 94 part, but then she plays Sarah Fear. And she plays yeah. like she embodies Sarah Fear. She's not the actual Sarah Fear. There is an actress who plays Sarah Fear, the real Sarah yeah. Fear, right? And so yep. you kind of see her inhabiting someone. So are her friends just there visually because that's who she might recognize and can kind of piece two and two together. Or are they genuinely like, Oh, my ancestors look a lot like me, etc. It's muddy at best, but forgivable yeah. because you can say, yeah, you're not going to pay a whole new cast to play these characters. Mm -hmm. Um, moving forward through the story, right? Um, yeah, the accents were bad, but in terms of storylines, the one thing that did bother me, honestly, was the lesbian story traveling through back to 1666. Um, yeah. I'm not saying I'm, I'm all about more representation in Hollywood. I, I, I super dig the storyline in 94. What are the odds that the witch and, you know, and the pastor's daughter are lesbians there too, right? Like, what are the odds that this is the catalyst? What are the chances that their story is identical? The mother, played by the same woman, has the same problems. You know, the 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 daughter, you know, essentially, right, effectively, Samantha, you know, she's the same character. Uh, mm -hmm. Dina is the same, or Sarah Fear is the same character. Like, this is, it felt lazy 
in terms of the yeah. writing. And I thought that, and it was also unnecessary. It would have been more than enough that you have these kids dancing in the woods, eating, you know, yum, yum berries. And, uh, <laughs> and this dude walks up, he's trying to bang Sam or whatever and get shot down by her bestie, Sarah fear and humiliated in front of all these people. Cause he's just sporting wood for, no reason whatsoever yeah. right and so like i mean maybe i've just forgotten what it's like to be a kid but it takes a whole lot more now to get that to happen whereas before perhaps a stiff wind right um but that's just age and so uh but you know <laughs> and so you know but it would have been more than enough that the humiliation right would have spurned yeah. him to throw these girls under the bus and call them witches and whatever and, and that would have been all we needed and i felt like it lessened the narrative from 94 and it just made it like it was just noticeable and it was just like uh, really like the exact same thing is the catalyst here and yes. uh you know, then speaking to the twists, right? And without necessarily spoiling them, um, like you said, Rico, and I couldn't agree more, beyond predictable. There is nothing shocking here. I'm pretty sure I even texted Tim. The second we see Solomon Good and his family is dead, he's like, oh, all we need is a good harvest. I was like, boom. So he makes a deal with the devil. He's the one sending all the evil. This chick's not a witch at all. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm calling it at minute whatever. And I think yeah. Tim's response was just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and, but I would argue that even though you figure it out right away, this, as I said from Jump, these movies are not groundbreaking, right? This isn't The Sixth Sense. This isn't anything crazy. Um, it doesn't make the ride less enjoyable, right? At the end of the log flume, you know you're going to drop down a massive drop, everyone's going to get wet, and it is what it is. You still stand in line and you ride the stupid ride, right? You've yep, ridden yep. those same rides a thousand times. You know how they end. You know how they go. You've ridden this ride a thousand times. You know how it ends. You know how it goes. It doesn't make it any less fun so as long as you take the ride it's it's a good time yeah but seeing the whole sarah fear thing and samantha like you had to have seen that coming for like, sure I as did. far as them making, making it you know their relationship and she was entranced by the devil and that's witchcraft and blah blah that's that's if it was anything else i would have been that would have surprised me like if it was some other deal right like that that definitely would have surprised me but it it had to have been that way in order to tell the same story. That's why Sarah Fear, in an about way, chose them. You know, because what would have been a lot more fun is if Sarah Fear had banged out the dude that, like, Sam was interested in and she got pissed and was like, she bewitched him, right? Because that's really the more classic, like, witch story, right? It's, mm, you know, mm. married dude, bangs out chick, gets caught and is like, ooh, I've been bewitched, right? Or like, ooh, it's right. a succubus. And and so, you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> not my fault that I'm, you know, poning out this 14-year-old girl. So, you know, that was kind of how it went down in like the Salem days. But, you know, again, and, and I agree with you, and I, I think that narrative on its own would have lent itself well i think in light of the fact that it's the exact same you know conflict that we see in mm -hmm. 1994 that's what does it a disservice to be honest give me one or the other 
right? I think it works better in 94, uh, not as well in 66. Yeah. But all I'm saying is don't give me the same thing twice. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I think it would have worked well either way, but just give it to me once. Um, and then my one criticism that I want to point out in part two of 94 uh, mm-hmm. that speaks back to part one, 1994, is that you, I feel like they back themselves into a corner and the story suffers as a result because. In 1994, you kill off two characters, right? Yep. Simply because you don't take the easy way of riding around in the ambulance to do your dirty, <laughs> right? Right, right. So you kill two yeah. characters, right? And of, and two main characters of this group. And then in 1994 part two, right, which is the second half of 1666, I'm exhausted already. So, yeah, uh that's a lot of numbers. It is. It is. Um, we don't read books and we don't do numbers. Um, no maths. No so, maths. Need to read. <laughs> so, uh, so suddenly you find yourself in a position where you need another pair of hands, right? Yeah. But you've killed off two of the friends who've been in on this from the beginning. And so now all of a sudden we have to introduce a new character after we've been invested for two and a half movies already. And now mm-hmm. we have to accept this new character. I mean, we don't even see the fill-in, right? It's it's almost that ridiculous, right? Like, yeah. you go up to this guy and you're like, hey, want to kill Sheriff Good? And he's super in. And then there's sort of, and by the way, that's what happened. And he's like, great, right? Like, in the course of 45 minutes, I'm sold. Whereas yeah. you had characters who have seen it from the start. And if you had kept even just one, you wouldn't have to introduce this new blood in this, you know, in the latter part of the story. And it just felt sloppy. It felt like you'd written yourself into a corner and they're just like, well, what about the janitor? Right. So again, just, he was written into the beginning. No, I understand that, but he wasn't like involved. His only tie into the story is that he hates Sheriff Good for being a racist. He had to have come in. Because you, you see in the beginning, why pull the janitor in after any more than questioning him? And you keep pulling him in, you keep pulling him in. So that's just going to tell you, what what is it uh, mean you have this conversation about if, if you see a shotgun on someone, you know they're going to have to use it? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. But that's why, yeah. but all the scenes with him feel like reshoots just to bring him into the third one. It's well, like so just me- keeping him in the background, keeping him in your subconscious to be like, so that you're not super shocked when you're like, Oh, who's that guy? You're like, well, so oh, here, that guy. To that point, Frank, there is a, there's the the, the little uh, pep talk, you know, that bottom of the ninth moment that Dina has in at the end where she's like, we're going to do this for Simon and for Kate and for Cindy and for all of the people that have, you know, been, di- whatever. And the camera cuts to him and you're like, what's his dog in this fight? Other than he lives, he in hates Shady Sheriff side. Good. Like right, and I'm like, you just named all these people that three of the four people here have some sort of emotional attachment to. Agreed. And then there's this guy. Yep. And like, yeah, Rico, you're right. They pump him in enough that yeah, he needs to pay off in the whole thing with the card and the Urkel joke and whatnot. Like, okay, but add a third person 
to 94. Like, add a third person to their friend group, right? Somebody that they picked up along the way or something. Or just I, kill you know, I, one less person. Or just kill one. It, I'm sort of going with the idea that you you feel like you needed the two kills. Pull, add, add somebody, right? Like, that could have been just as effective. But it was that line in uh, in, in that scene that I was just like, yeah, this guy feels out of place. Like, one of these things is not yeah, like the I, I other. Yeah. yeah, I will agree with you there. But you needed someone who knew them all to help set them up to, to trap her. Yeah, like yeah. That, that was, sure. you know, and, and, killing, and killing the other two in the beginning had to emotionally invested into the framework. Yeah. I mean, and they both had to die to die together because, you know, their, their, you know, their connection to each other. They both dealt drunk to each other and had a, had an unbeknownst, you know, relationship to each other. And then, you know, uh, you know, what's the young kid uh, messing around with her, and then he comes out for comedic value. I mean, it it it's almost one of those things where you know they almost have to die. I mean, yeah, it's to stable them into you know a real stake and and making sure you know whomever needs to die dies. And this, I mean, I think I can explain it away again too, as it's maybe another one of those you know incongruencies with the fact that you're reading it as a teenager or whatever. And so that, that source material that you're going with, you take some liberties with that, right? You're like, I don't remember what happened in the book previous to this, right? Like, Oh, okay. Random people pop up and go and whatnot. Um, but when you're, when you're looking for, a, you know, to be critically in a movie, you're like, eh, I just don't. And I really, I mean, they could have killed him off and I would have been fine with it. Right. You know, maybe if they served to have him, murdered in the, the in the last part because nobody dies you know at that point like all, right. the, all the murdering all the murdering is the murderers murdering themselves at that god point. that was well, so funny it was so great that's that such great. a good scene absolutely yeah um all right so to start bringing this towards a conclusion um you know there's a lot more we could talk we could do a whole episode on each one of these movies and we could talk about yeah. the good and the bad we could talk about the janitor guy you know inventing the ipod and we could talk about all these insane things right um but all that aside these are kind of the broad strokes of how these sort of played out to us how did they fare when compared to the original series and that's an easy question they don't right None mm -hmm. of these movies tie directly into any of the source novels that existed in the Fear Street series, right? Which encompassed a multitude of books. Um, you know, my sister was a massive connoisseur of these. And so I talked to her a bit before the show, too. And she was like, yeah, man, they were all like standalone kind of murder she wrote stories that all took place in this town of Shadyside where this street... Fear Street, had, it was super creepy, and, you know, sometimes the good guy lived there, sometimes the bad guys lived there, sometimes, you know, the Scooby-Doo, like, if it wasn't for you, right? Like, you know, it was just, that was sort of the dynamic. I think what this series does brilliantly, I think if you had married yourself into trying to... Now, we see a lot of the books in the movie, right? We see them <laughs> in B. Dalton. She sells one at the beginning. I thought that was really great. Oh, this is really a great horror book and she's like this is trash i'm buying it for my kid and it was like yeah. i think it was wrong number something it was one of the rl stein books um we see them yeah. she makes like a flak jacket out of it right like she there's a lot yeah. of uh great moments where we see the the original art from some of these original novels um but uh what it does brilliantly if you marry yourself into trying to bring in these these 
characters and storylines that don't necessarily mesh together. Yeah. I think it's going to make for a bad movie. A la, um, you know, uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't have a cohesive narrative and, the, and you're just focusing on these cameos for this artwork that we remember and it's yeah. PG 13 and it's whatever. So it fails. This movie says we're going to tell its own story in the world of fear street. Mm-hmm. We're going to pay tribute to the tone of the books, right? We're going to bring in some more of the sex, some more of the murder, some more of the suspense, some more of the mystery, right? We're going to really focus in on that stuff and tell a tonal story that matches with what the the books would do. Um, but yeah. it's not going to be directly related to a specific source material. And I think that's the brilliant move. That is the way that you do this successfully. Hundred percent. So I agree. <laughs> here, here. So <laughs> no, I will I, say though, going back to the, the the book thing, I like the the Damon like reference. Like as soon as she pulled her shirt up and dropped the book, I was like, Damon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From Friday after next, yeah, I was dude. like, oh yeah, it's so good. Um, <laughs> that really was an <laughs> awesome reference. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Is that a phone book? Yeah. Um, I even have a phone book. I'm not listening. So, <laughs> that's such a good movie. We got to do an episode on the Friday movies. Um, okay, so to bring this home, um, final thoughts on what you guys thought of the trilogy as a whole. Final thoughts, final words. Would you recommend it? What would you rate it? Um, we already kind of gave our ranking. Maybe give that one more time. But overall, as a trilogy, what do you rank it? And and do you recommend it? And what were your final thoughts? Let's uh, let's start with Rico. Oh, I definitely recommend it um, for your uh, for your mild horror fan. Um, definitely, um, it doesn't get overly gory. It doesn't get overly graphic. I mean, it, it rides that fine line. I don't know, man. Those you know, camp murders with the the sisters were. I mean, that was like mouth sounds into the microphone. Like it was... eh. I mean, had better. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a child. Right. Actually, right. no, it technically I mean, was. If you would have given me child deaths, I would have been like, yeah, hardcore fans. What is all wrong of with you? <laughs> all right, sorry. So the go ahead. So hey, you, were reco- <laughs> you were it recommending it. You were giving your final thoughts. Go ahead. Yes, I definitely recommend it. I really enjoyed it. Surprisingly, uh, definitely enjoyed it. I thought it paid perfect homage. Your timelines, all your small details. The music was fantastic. As you know, oh, I've always point. been a rock fan. The music was mm. great. I it's Every time a song came on, it just pushed me back. I was yes. like, man, I remember literally listening to these songs. My homeboy, Brian Shealy, who got me into horror movies and and watching oh, it, it just came like man like that's 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 my true horror master right there that's you know but uh yeah i definitely recommend it um 78 is my favorite i mean i you know classic horror slash you know definitely enjoyed it but i have recommended it and uh yeah what do you give what do you give what score out of 10 do you give the trilogy so, on the whole for on the whole, probably seven and a half, just because sixty six kind of killed it for me. That's high. I would have yeah, gone eight. Okay, you would have gone eight. I would have gone eight. 
I would have gone eight if 66 would have been just done a little bit. I know it was it kind of rip off ish. I just I don't there was more originality into it. I would have I would have gone higher. All right. Let's Timothy this bitch. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, Rico, it's some great points about the music. I think, um, you, you they didn't go obvious, right. They, they, they pulled some, some good cuts for, for some oh, of this yeah. stuff. Um, I, I think, uh, as much as I don't necessarily like the offspring, um, you know, the, uh, come out and play songs, oh, you know, keep oh, them separated my. in the mall was, was pretty good. Um, I really, I, I'm right there with you. I think, you know, I, not having this connection, I go looking back on who I am now, I'm surprised I didn't read more Goosebumps or Fear Street. Like, it just seems like it would have been something natural for me. Um, but again, I don't read books, so, you know, it, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, it, it was just so much fun. And I, you know, I watched part one on Friday part two on Saturday. Um, and then the, the third one on Sunday evening, Sunday afternoon, something like that. And never felt like I was slogging through, you know, a, a, a trilogy, right. It didn't feel like I was watching three days worth of the same movie. They were all unique to themselves, all gave me something to think about. And there's enough there to kind of work your way through things. Frank and I have had multiple conversations about these, just kind of tracking through these things and, you know, the story of the witch and the killers. And, um, you know, there's some open endedness to it. There's a post-credit scene and there are, you know, lists of other names on these rocks. I don't know what you do with this, but there are plenty of other killers. There's that we don't get backstories for. There's a little kid running around with a baby mask on and a baseball bat. Like, right. That's the I, one I like, wanted to see right there. Right. I like, what is that guy's deal? Or the dude in the plague mask who drowns people in a lake. Like, come on. Like, yeah. what is that? Um, but yeah, this little kid with a baseball bat and just walks around menacingly slapping things. Like, what? Um, who doesn't so want to see a deformed kid beat kids with a, with a baseball bat? I'm just saying. Right. You I with mean, the kids, man. <laughs> You've got children. Yeah. You've got God dead children, my children. All dead like You are uncle to my children. This is all troubling. Hey, um, if you didn't know then, you know now. Nah, I knew. There you go. I knew. <laughs> um, but yeah, in the end, it was just a lot of fun. And having watched it twice, it was no less fun. In, in fact, mm. I think I liked, like I've said a couple times, 94, I liked better on the second run through. Um I agree with Rico 100%. 16.66 just kind of drags it down for a multitude of reasons. I didn't, I, I liked that one again less to the point that, like, when it came around, I was like, ugh. And so that's why I'm really separating that out now in like 16.66 and then 94 part two. I love 94 part two. And that has to be what's pulling that one up in, in, in audience scores because sure. that part's, a, that's a part's a lot of fun visually. Um, and then I think maybe one of the greatest scenes like we touched on with just all the killers just wailing on each other and tearing yes. each other apart is just so much fun. Um, it was beyond a pleasant surprise. I feel like I'll come back to this. I've definitely recommended if somebody wants to watch it, you know, if you hanging out with somebody for the weekend and they haven't seen it, it's totally fun to put on, you know, if you need something to watch a couple nights. Um, 
and yeah, not super gory, not super scary. I was sort of thinking, I was like, maybe this would become like an annual October kind of movie. I don't think it has a Halloween sort of feel to it. I think this has a good summer movie feel to it. This is a summer horror oh, yeah. movie. Yeah, summer like, this, camp. Oh, yeah. Summer, yeah. yeah. This just fits for like a, a summer movie. Um, but yeah, I, I'll come back to it for sure. I think at some points, um, you know, I told you, Frank, at one point that it left me wanting more again with these other killers and things like that. Do I want sequels? Not necessarily. I don't think that's what I want. Does it look like they might be one? Well, they left it open for it. So it, it's a possibility. Um, How do you make a sequel of a trilogy? I don't know. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, have, they, you not, have, have you not watched any of the, uh, the conjuring spinoffs? Yeah. I mean, now really- spinoffs, I can absolutely see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with the kid, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, like it, it okay, it's not my turn. Someone, but please make possible. a uh, this movie for, for Rico. Make this kid murder movie for Rico, please. <laughs> he just wants to see a deformed kid with a baseball bat destroy other kids. That's it. Finish it up. Why not? It's a simple <laughs> ask. Not? He's a man of simple pleasures. Uh, all right, um, buddy, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, no, th- uh, that's that's where I'm at. I think. I think I'll go, I think I'll go seven. Um, you know, again, having watched it through twice, I really, really just think it, it was a lot of fun and it, that just kind of buoys it for me on that. All right. So yeah, I agree with a lot of what's being said here and, and no need to, to beat the dead horse or, you know, the beat to beat the bed, the dead baby horse for Rico. Um, <laughs> uh, those are called Colts. Okay. Yep. My apologies. Um, and so, Oh, I think that, you know, for me, it's, as you said, it's a fun watch. If you're coming into it, and I know that's crazy to say some of the stuff that we've talked about already, right? But it's, this is not your nail bite horror. This is not top level acting. This is not by far, like it's nowhere close, right? It's predictable. Mm -hmm. It's campy. It's poorly acted. It's lazy writing. It's, there's a lot of things wrong here, right? There's, you know, glaring holes, inconsistencies, random choices. Um, I would argue not enough attention played to, uh, really driving home the 1994 thing. You know, I think what you have here is like an elder millennial, you know, writing and directing a movie and they're trying to remember what 94 was like, but Mm, it doesn't mm. feel like it's that far off from what things are like now to them. And so you get a lot of just like really blatant references of like, Oh, what's this thing? It's bigger than a tape deck and it's, it skips all the time. And it's like, okay, so it's 1994 because, uh, the guy is upset about the disc man coming out or the kid when he's on the internet. (laughs) But when, but when, uh, when Josh is on the internet and Dina comes in, she's like, this internet thing is stupid. It's never going to last. You're wasting your time. And he's like, oh, it's the turn of the century. You know, and you're just kind of like, all right, so the internet, the disc, man, this is the mall. This is the best we have to really drive home the fact that it's 1994. But at the same time, Maybe there's not enough to differentiate it. Whereas I thought 78 did a better job, you know, 66 tried, right? You just put people in like linen and tunics and, uh, you know, you have them run around and talk in horrible accents. But all that being said, it's a fun watch. It's light. It's easy to take in. It's easy to digest. Um, It gets in there. It does what it's supposed to do. I would argue even 66 has moments and elements where it's like, you know, there are 
answers to questions and things that you're happy that you get them. And it's, it's almost worth having to sit through it. Um, 1994 part two is excellent. And I thought that was hilarious. And it's, you know, we're back to the, the tone and the camp that I enjoyed from the first one. You know, I feel like you guys are rating it much higher than it deserves to be. I think, you know, so and some I, of its parts. And I think in the 80s and stuff on Rotten Tomatoes and certainly the 90s for 66 is is high. I give it a 6 out of 10. And I say okay. that simply because it's above average. It has some rewatchability. Um, you know, I would watch it again. I would, you know, maybe once or twice here or there. Uh, when you're in the mood, in the you know, just in the mood for it, um, but uh, you know, it's not something that I need to like, you know, kill myself to go watch again right away. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, it's got rewatchability. It's a fun thing. You know, you can catch a few jokes that you missed the first time, that kind of stuff. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not like, I mean, I don't know. For me, uh, an eight or like a seven and a half is like, ooh, like that's a that brings some some real some real meat to the table and and I think this one doesn't necessarily do that but like I said just because you know everything about the ride doesn't make it any less fun to ride it and uh, yep. and that's that's what these movies are for sure and I would argue probably some of the best done from that type of IP for that audience it, mm-hmm. they, it's the best you could probably do um, without really shelling out some cash for some top tier actors. Um, yeah. But even then, like that's probably the that's probably its weakest link in in you know. But I think you know, and also groundbreaking in how it released and and really fascinating how they did it and that serialized nature. Super cool. Reminded me, Rico talked about Grindhouse. It reminded me a lot of how like Planet Terror and Death Proof came out. These movies that sort of play together, came out close to each other, different entities. But, you know, I I mean, that's a stretch. I just, I'm trying to think of things that sort of have released serialized like this. And uh, and that, that gave me a nod that I was looking for from the nostalgia there too. Um, anyways, a lot of fun. Six out of ten. And, and absolutely recommend. So... All right, guys, that about wraps us up. Next week is another uh, Rewind episode, so we'll just be talking Mm -hmm. about a bunch of random stuff. Rico, my friend, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Well, thank you for having me, gentlemen. Hopefully you can make the time for us again in the very near future. Yes, we need all the help we can get. I, I do what I can. <laughs> you can just let me know. As always, guys, you can check us out on the website, pausereviews.com. You can check us out on Instagram, at pausereviews. Send us DMs, comments on the post. Let us know what you want us to watch. Let us know your thoughts on what we have watched. Let us know how much you agree with us because we're geniuses. How much you disagree yep. with us because you're an idiot. You know, that hit too. us with all of that stuff. Um, you can even email us, pausereviews at gmail.com. There's all the ways that you can get in touch with us. We are here for you. Uh, Until next week with our Rewind episode. As always, I'm your boyfriend. Let's Timothy this bitch. (laughs) But I'm Rico. On shot first. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Uh, See ya.